Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Cameron, how are you doing this evening or morning for you, I suppose? Um, it's morning. Great, Will. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, do you mind um, giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Yeah. So Cameron Murray is my name. I'm currently a research fellow in the Henry Halloran Trust at the University of Sydney, and I, I basically do research on housing markets. And uh, I came to this point uh, in a probably different way from many academics. I worked in the property industry. I sold real estate. I worked for property developers. I've um, worked in the public service. I did a PhD in economics about corruption. I've done economics consulting, and now I'm back in academia. So I think I have a kind of broad range of interests and experience. Uh, and the big the big ideas I'm interested in, I, I think I'm interested in all big ideas <laughs> at the moment, but let me give you uh, some examples. Um, one of the things that frustrates me is, is logical inconsistencies when we apply economic reason, reasoning to um, especially policy settings. Um, and that puzzles me more when, when these are widely held beliefs in public. It's not just a few crazy economists that people are happy to believe two logically inconsistent things straight after each other when talking about policy A or policy B. So some of them, for example, are retirement income. So in Australia, we have superannuation, which is a compulsory 10% of your wage or salary that must go into a, a fund for your retirement. Um, I also look at con- consistencies and inconsistencies around the ideas about capital in economics. We have a lot of terms in economics like capital, supply, demand, and we use these terms because we don't know what we mean. <laughs> um, we think we do, but you know, does capital mean a building or does capital ma- mean a-, a piece of paper that says I have a right to own um, you know, a share in a company? Like, wh- Which is capital? Are they both capital? Do they have the same economic effects? Uh, I'm also interested in pricing versus non-pricing ways of allocating the resources of society. And I, I'm, you know, I've come to the view at the moment that we hate using prices. When something's really important for society, we avoid prices and we have other command and control allocations. So inside every company, we have command and control non-market systems. When we allocate, for example, the space uh, in the sky for the planes, we have non-market uh, traffic control, same on the roads. We don't price um, who gets to go first at the traffic lights, the same on the oceans. Uh, Antarctica is, <laughs> you know, not allocated by private property and prices. So um, families don't allocate by prices. So that's one of those um, big ideas and puzzles uh, in economics that's caught my interest, but I have a broad range of interests as well. Got it. Well, I, I want to start on that that uh, 
that that line on prices first. You know, for example, we don't use prices. You know, we can't sell your kidney in the West, at least. Um, you know, what, what's your sense about why like certain things are taboo to use prices or in markets around? Is it just like some kind of uh, social norm that's just kind of adaptive that sprung up? There's no good reason for it, but it's just the way we feel. Or is there something uh, more robust going on? Yeah, good question. Uh, I, I I don't know. This is one of the puzzles that interests me. If I knew the answer, I would have been writing about it and rather than thinking about it um, and still being confused by it. But we, we can we can we can sort of approach this the way I'd approach anything and think about well, what's something that's taboo to price here, but isn't taboo, um, you know, in a different cultural setting. And so you can think about brides and marriage, right? So the brides have a price in in many countries. And the question is, well, why is it taboo here and not there? Which system works better? Does it really matter? I don't know. Um, you know, you can think about uh, these edge cases like uh, paying to hunt lions and elephants. You know, does wildlife have a price? Is that a fair way to allocate um, this animal? Uh, so... I don't really know. It's a great question. I think it's an open question. And I think the bias in economics is to say, oh, there's a there's a, an issue, whatever that is. People have differing views about what's good or bad in a situation. And the economic brain is trained through, through the sort of indoctrination of, of university to think, ah, oh, we're missing a price. We need a price here. <laughs> Whereas I think that instinct is um, it's useful. Um, I definitely like acknowledging that there is, a, a, even when something isn't priced, there, there is a value to it and we might be allocating it in a different way. Um, but I think if economists could, could think more broadly and say, yes, there's a value to this, it could be priced, but it, there's also hundreds of other ways we can deal with this allocation issue and we should consider some of those and see uh, what this community might be happy with and maybe we can experiment i'm a big fan of experimenting um, but that's a, that's a really interesting question uh are prices generally you know more efficient I, i'm assuming they're more efficient than you know i don't know like in the ex kidneys example it seems like it would be more efficient to have everyone be able to like have an open market for kidneys than trying to you know there's like some interesting uh sorting uh, methods we use here in the United States where, you know, you can like, if you need a kidney and, and I have someone that needs a kidney, you know, I can give you my cousins and we can like trade these things, but they're, it's like uh. difficult, right? It's difficult to do. I don't know. Do, do you think there are like uh, some unique advantages to these other allocation strategies um, other than like uh, people are more comfortable with them? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. I do think there are advantages uh, because uh, this is the thing about prices. And I think we don't acknowledge this very much as economists, but prices, um, we sort of often just assume that they're right, whatever that means, that there's a, an optimal price for a good or service, for a kidney, for a heart surgery, whatever it is. Um, and or, or maybe, uh, you know, shares in, uh, in BHP or Tesla or whatever. And we assume that that price today is good and accurate and useful. And then we can see prices move you know, 50, 70% in a day, all of a sudden. And then the question is, well, how can the price be right yesterday and today um, and socially useful when that's, it's so divergent? 
Um, so I think it's worth acknowledging that prices can be wrong. Um, let me go back to uh, prices can be wrong, but also there's a question of what well, prices work to be efficient when everyone has the same income. Because what prices do is they can allocate goods between competing needs, but they also can allocate goods between different income levels because the trade-off um, to someone at a higher income or wealth level is much, much lower when they pay a higher price for a product. Um, so there's also the, the unequal access to scarce resources when incomes differ by using a price system. And so my understanding in the US is this can be a big deal in healthcare where, where uh, the poorer um, sort of classes of society have a lot of trouble accessing healthcare, yet it's probably socially optimal for them to have more healthcare and better health um, to improve the average health of the country. And so, for, an, for example, in Australia, we have a private health system where anyone who wants to pay can go and get whatever treatment they want. We have a public system as well beside that. And you can just literally arrive at a hospital and they will treat you until they think you're good to go for free. <laughs> and so that's just one way we deal with um, that issue that pricing um, can be useful, but when it's uh, an important product or service where we want broad access to it and, and incomes are having a big effect on the allocation, then we can try a different method. Would you still have the same kind of um, thoughts if we had some kind of UBI or something where you brought everybody's income up to some floor and then, you know, you can still make these decisions just using prices or you think still think there are other um, benefits for using non kind of price allocation methods? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think in a UBI world, there'll still be a huge variation in income levels. So I don't think it gets us too far. And I think if you look at a country like Australia and the welfare system in Australia, we have a UBI. We have a welfare system. It's very targeted. It's just we don't um, administer it in the same way. So a UBI, everyone gets essentially the same payment and then we, sort of, we even out through the tax, a progressive tax system, um, the difference between what you earn privately and what your after-tax income is. Uh, but in Australia, we have a very targeted welfare system. So um, families with children get payments. So there's a minimum income that you can have. If you're, if you're a family with two children, uh, we make sure your income never falls below a certain amount. If you're a retired person, we make sure your income never falls below a certain amount. If, you, uh, if you're unemployed or you're on disability, we make, uh, make sure your income never falls below an amount. So we already have that to quite a degree. So I don't think it changes the fact that there still will be a huge um, variation and dis broad distribution of income across the economy. And so you know, non-price allocation will be a huge feature to get those social outcomes we want of whatever it might be, whether it's just fairness, whether it improves efficiency, uh, economically speaking, or whatever the case may be. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, I want to talk a little bit of, about capital. Um, so, you know, like you mentioned, it's something economists talk a lot about. Um, I, you mentioned the term, it, it, uh, it may be too encompassing or it may be uh, misleading at times. Um, mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you kind of mean about that? Is it kind of primarily the distinction between land and, you know, 
productive equities or something like that? Or is it something different? No, no, something something different. I think you're already onto the you know, you're already in one world of capital. You know, you call it productive equity. Is equity productive? <laughs> no, it's a it's a piece of paper that says I own something and I can swap it around with other people and it, it sort of it doesn't do anything. Right. Um, we know it doesn't do anything because if if everyone in your business goes on strike, your equity is worth zero. If they walk away, it's worth zero. So um, in economics, we have this weird uh, way we talk about things is that we assume everything is a physical product. When we talk about capital, we mean physical items. We don't mean rights to those items. So when we talk about capital as in a building we we literally mean the bricks and the glass and the tin and the concrete we don't mean who gets to own a share of it because we we sort of assume away this ownership structure in the economy um and so this this has big implications for example with retirement policy in australia and i think in the us you have these 401ks is that what they're called yeah um retirement accounts so the logic of that is that uh, if everybody doesn't consume their income, doesn't buy goods and services with it, but instead buys uh, financial assets, that we will have more capital and grow faster and be able to support more retirees. But of course, what you're actually doing when I don't spend my money on goods and services, but spend it on shares in Tesla, is I'm swapping uh, money in my bank account to the person who used to own a Tesla share and putting the money in their bank account and they're putting their Tesla share in my account. That changes nothing about the productive capacity of the economy, how much capital there is, how many buildings there are. <laughs> right? How quickly we're uh, you know building new machines and and trying new ways of doing things. We're literally just swapping the pieces of paper that says who owns what in society. And because we call that capital, as well as buildings and machines capital, we can pretend that savings helps the economy grow. <laughs> um, whereas. In reality, capital is just a new good and service. Just at, so you can't you know, in in in, ec in economic theory, we have two types of goods. We have capital goods and and consumer goods. But what is a what's a car? It, if if a household buys a car in the national accounts, we'll go. That's a consumer item. If I'm a taxi company and buy a car, same car physically. It will be an investment good and it will get counted uh, and, and the more that the cars are owned by taxi companies and not households, uh, the better we will apparently be as a society because we have more capital goods. So we're, we're sort of essentially in a sort of um, a labelling game of um, what we're calling different goods and services. So, so, yeah, I think economists can be very confused about capital and so what that ends up doing is we have this great big you know financial sector that says that gets to tell this economic story about where capital allocators 
capital is how the economy grows when they're just swapping pieces of paper back and forth amongst each other and missing the fact that to um, to get more capital you actually have to spend money on goods and services and so for example um, you know this this ties into big stories about why being frugal is good for the economy you know i'm a i'm a saver i don't want welfare because people waste their money and spend stuff um, we, we have this ideological thread running through the economic discussion about how savings good and spending's not but in fact capital is spending you know when we borrow a lot of money to build a house that house that we build is capital <laughs> so i just find the whole debate uh the whole discussion of capital very warped um in that we can't agree and say hey capital involves spending not saving if everyone saves we're all going to end up swapping the pieces of paper that says who own what and that is not improving productivity so that's sort of where i see the big debate on what is capital at the moment gotcha gotcha i, I i'm curious does, and forgive me because I, I could be completely off base here but does this play you know what's your stance on monetary policy you know i are you you know a fan of like you know mmt you know should we just be spending a lot more as as governments um or something like that up to like some mm. rate of inflation or or uh, is that like just completely unrelated no, that's that's a good question. And monetary policy is another puzzle that falls out of this because we know the main transmission mechanism of monetary policy is to make those pieces of paper that says who owns what worth more money um, because we're capitalising the future cash flows that those rights give us uh, at a lower interest rate. So if you read the macroeconomics textbooks, if you read the publications of all the central banks, they say, oh, what we do is when there's an economic crisis, we reduce the, the overnight cash rate and that flows through to other interest rates in the economy. And the purpose of doing this is to make assets like property and shares and stocks go up in value and the people who own those might spend some more money. And it, that's literally what is written there. And that for me <laughs> is very, very weird it's a very weird way to manage the economy because in economic terms it's equivalent of saying uh when the economy is bad we'll give all the asset owners cash it's literally the same distributional effect as giving people who own houses and shares money uh, from the central bank and so the question is why did we choose that what what is going on and why do economists believe this is the most amazing um, way to stabilize the economy and why is not working now <laughs> why have we got runaway inflation um, was the last 25 years just pure luck and we were you know we were just uh, got lucky at the same time as we were doing this monetary policy and then we just ascribed causality and said oh it must be the monetary policy and now that we've got yeah, runaway inflation who do we blame now so it's it's very interesting um i i do think monetary policy is overplayed there's also a big economics literature literature um, talking about the dynamic incentives uh, involved in investing in capital and i actually mean capital like building buildings <laughs> um, and 
at lower interest rates, the, the cost of delaying those investments is reduced. So you've got this uh, slowdown in the, in the urgency to go, hey, I've got undeveloped land, maybe I could build a housing estate or a high rise. Now that the interest rate's low, the, you know, I'm not in a hurry as much to get cash by developing and selling that project. Uh, so it sort of takes, takes the pressure off um, the investment sort of motive in the economy. So there's not only do I not think it works as described as clearly, there are also effects in the opposite direction that, that I think reduce the overall incentive effect of monetary policy. And I also think the distributional effects are very troublesome. For example, during COVID, it's not clear why um, we had to all drop interest rates to zero when we could have just put um, you know, a few thousand dollars in everybody's bank accounts if we wanted people to spend more money. And that would have been a perfectly fair way to keep spending happening in the economy and, and sort of buffer that period. I don't, I don't know why we don't. Uh, it's, it's a mystery. But I do think in the next couple of decades, we will see a much, much more focused debate on monetary policy. And people will start asking the question of, does it do what we think it does? Were we just juicing asset prices? Um, did it have terrible distributional consequences? Is there a better way using fiscal policy of just literally automatically putting people, putting money in people's bank accounts? or something like that. So they're, they're my concerns on the monetary policy front. Now, th there definitely are distributional effects that we've seen, especially in the US, like you know, housing prices up like a third year over year and um, downstream effect of monetary policy. But we also did try, you know, putting uh, money directly in people's bank accounts. And um, at least in the US, we did. And it does seem like policymakers are much more willing to do that at this point mm. than they were, say, in 2008. Yeah, well, I think the experience of COVID uh, around the world has shown that governments are willing to do that. In the 2008 crisis, Australia was world-renowned for just putting money in people's bank accounts, and we did it again. Um, so I do think that we've had the experience now and everything was fine, um, might make people more willing to talk about, hey, why don't we just make this automatic? Um, why do we have to rely on monetary policy so much? So let's find out. That's interesting. Um, I want to move on to corruption now. It's something you've written quite a bit about. Um, what is common knowledge about corruption in the economics profession that lay people might just find surprising? You know, just for instance, to me, one thing I always find mysterious is why is it that um, more people just don't bribe police officers like in the US? And I don't know what the case is in Australia. I don't know if it's, it's different, but it's, is yeah. there just enormous those kind of things or, or what? Yeah, well, if you've traveled a bit in developing countries, you'll, you'll notice that we, what we call petty corruption, just literally an on-the-spot cash exchange for a discretionary favor, is extremely common and almost impossible to bribe a police officer in Australia. It's all like, like um, very, very difficult. And I think, yeah, I guess it's partly partly cultural, a bit like the military, right? There's a lot of um, indoctrination and training and, and, and effort into maintaining the norms so that if one person does it, others will dob it in. 
dob them in. So you do end up at these sort of two equilibriums, we'd say in economics, one where everyone takes, every cop takes a bribe and one where none do. Because if you're in between, um, someone's going to dob someone in for doing the wrong thing. So if you're not taking bribes and everyone else is, they're like, come on, mate, just get some cash, move on. That's how we do it. <laughs> if you are taking bribes and everyone else is not, you know, they'll dob you in and you'll get kicked out. So I think it, go, it goes both ways and, and you want to, there are pressures to sustain that equilibrium and you want to invest in, in training and a culture that does sustain it so that you don't move over that hump and go the other way. But there's a lot of parallels in that to one of the big puzzles in economics of why there's so few political donations. Now, we might think, hey, there's heaps of political donations. It's just millions or, or billions probably in the US um of donations that's surely terrible but the way economists see the problem of corruption is a little bit different we see it like any other investment opportunity right uh and if the returns to an investment opportunity are a million dollars you'll spend close to a million dollars to get that and take your margin on it right um you know if if there's a million dollars on the line you spend it $5,000 and you don't get it, but if you spend another five, you probably will, well, you'll keep spending the money. And so the puzzle in economics is, well, the payoff to corruption and getting political favours and laws written in your, in your favour is hundreds of billions per year, every year. So if you capitalise that, if you get a law passed and that law lasts 10 to 20 years before anyone gets upset and gets it changed, and you're going to make billions a year for 10 to 20 years, you should be investing billions today just to get that one law passed. Now, if you add that up across the economy, all the potential law changes, corruption should just be the main business of society. <laughs> um, and yet in Australia, I think political donations total are only about 100 million a year across every level of politics. So per person, that's only like $4, right? Um, so it's, it's really, really tiny. And if you think about one political decision, for example, um, I think it was uh, in 2011 or 12, we were proposing a, a, new, a new national super profits tax on minerals and mining and oil uh, rents. And that was expected to raise two to four billion per year for 10 years. And so you know, you're already at 20 to $40 billion there. Um, so you would have thought mining companies would have to spend a lot of money uh, on politics to, you know, because that decision not to do that, which is what happened eventually, was worth 20 to $40 billion to them. And so the question is, why would a politician give them that um, favour of not going through with that decision for less money why would you not extort them for all the value that they get uh because they just ran a, a tv campaign spent 20 million dollars and the whole thing got unwound and the question is why why are politicians so cheap why are they not extorting people hey if you want me to write a law that helps your company um you're going to have to pay me most of the value of it i've got the upper hand here I'm not going to take a 0.1% cut <laughs> and put my career on the line. Um, and yet they do. 
that's one of the the economic mysteries uh, of corruption. <laughs> is it a? Do you think it's some story about like uh, again like social norms? It's just like if it's just too far outside, like uh, you know, people will shame you or something like that, and then you're just kind of you'll get kicked out or something like that. Uh, there there are norms, yeah. Uh, there's definitely constraints on this one to one bribery situation, like the petty petty bribery we call it. Uh, like the police officer, like the local politician taking a cash payment to get a government grant for a local sports club or whatever, or a grant for the local, local bikey gang's clubhouse renovation. Um, there's definitely norms against that type of thing. And there's, you know, I think we're in a good equilibrium, like just like the police force here in terms of you know, getting dobbed in um, on that. But I, I think the situation... This, this puzzle of why, why there isn't more corruption or why politicians are so cheap was part of the motivation for my PhD. And I, um, I think the res resolution to that problem comes from recasting the issue as not, not the traditional way economics thinks about it as this is an investment, this is a multi-million dollar political decision, how much do I pay how much do i extort from others to get that it's not a sort of investment calculation if you think of being in politics not as in a one-shot game where here's a decision this is how much it's going to cost you but as a long-run game of forming a group with which you will trade many many favors over a long period of time then you get a very different view that one decision goes to your mates, well, the decision's got to go to someone, right? So you give it to your mates. In the next period, your mates, when they have discretion, they will give you a favourable decision. And then in the next period, you'll give some other people in your circle of friends a favourable decision. And over the long term, everybody shares a cut in those gains, but some individuals in the group, like the key politician, might get a tiny cut, but it's still a cut and, it, and the rest of the gains go to someone in their group and that group is repaying each other over a long period of time with those gains through other favours. So if you think of it as a long-run game of group formation and internal favouritism to that group, then you can resolve a lot of those puzzles in economics uh, about corruption. In fact, I wrote a book in 2017 called Game of Mates, How Favours Bleed the Nation, which essentially outlines that way of thinking about uh, corruption and presented a lot of results from my PhD uh, on political favouritism. So I think that's where we are and, and I think it helps you understand why uh yeah politicians will give these high value political decisions to their mates it helps understand the revolving door after politics it helps understand all the uh, charities and donations and all these weird clubs and groups that these people are involved in because they have to sustain that cohesive um, group and find different ways to repay each other over time so it's this much more longer term game. It's more complicated. There's a lot more actors than just uh, you know two parties, and that's why it, uh, it it unfolds as it does. Yeah. So if you 
take a slice out of that long long run game and go, hey, look, um, I'm just slicing off this year and I can tell you this year's favours, this person did this person a favour and hardly got any payment for it, you're going to miss the whole picture. And if you consider the whole picture, um, then you'll understand, well, yes, um, but the group got the benefit and that person is a member of that group and then the, the, the value that got gained is circulated through future favours to others in that group. And that, that sort of resolves that problem by, by expanding the time horizon out and seeing um, not just individuals but, but groups and alliances who, who can identify each other and repay favours in the future. Makes sense. It makes sense. I, I want to move on now and talk a little bit about housing. Um, can you talk about how property is monopolistic and what kind of implications this has for how, how we should structure a housing policy? I would love to. <laughs> so this is actually this is actually my current research agenda at the University of Sydney. So I'm in the Henry Halloran Trust. Henry Halloran was a quantity surveyor and, and property owner in New South Wales in the uh, late 19th century and early 20th century. Um, and so my group is very involved in property and urban development uh, research. And, and my niche is this idea of the absorption rate. And the absorption rate is how quickly will markets supply new housing? Um, we often use those supply and demand words in, when we analyse housing markets. And of course, no one knows what that means. Does supply mean the number of properties listed for sale? Does it mean the potential number of new dwellings in the planning system? Does it mean the actual number under construction? Does it mean the stock of existing houses? I mean, we don't know. Uh, people use the word to mean whatever they want, a little bit like capital. Um, so I look at the rate of um, investment that property owners make converting underdeveloped sites into new housing. The idea of property as a monopoly comes up a lot because one of the big policy debates at the moment is about the housing market and should we just be upzoning everywhere and if we did that would property owners flood the market and crash prices now it sounds flippant when i say it like that but that's the logic people are using they are saying if you upzone everywhere those property owners will voluntarily build and sell so many houses that they crash the market and cause an economic recession <laughs> That's I, I, like that's that's the logic, right? And so the question is, well, why why does it sound so silly when I say it, but it sounds reasonable when you know, a thousand people on Twitter and all the Ivy League urban urbanism academics say it. <laughs> um, and I think the mystery is resolved by this idea of property as a monopoly. They have this view that property is competitive and they have a very traditional neoclassical economic view of what does competitive mean? Well, it's the number of buyers and sellers and there is this process of undercutting each other on price till you get back to a point where price equals input cost. I have a view where property is a monopoly. In fact, the word property meant monopoly for many hundreds of years and we can see how this comes up if we think of a world without property. And I'm he here talking physical property, not property as in, you know, I own a company, it's my property because of intellectual property or com 
commercial property law. I'm talking about rights to the three-dimensional space on planet Earth. Prior to property, like all the space is there, what, what do we have? Well, we have a competitive system. Anyone can go anywhere they want and do anything they want. Any human being on planet Earth can go to any three-dimensional space and they can stack up rocks, call it a house, and that's theirs. And anyone else can go into that house and occupy it because there's no property. It's just a free-for-all. And, in fact, uh, my understanding is a lot of the, the Indigenous Australian um, communities before uh, the British arrived didn't really have this idea of individual property. There was tribal property. Everything was for the tribe. Even objects they created uh, were all tribal property and they were allocated by tribal custom, not by price, not by this is so-and-so's boomerang, this is so-and-so's hut. There were customs to allocate it because there was no concept that an individual could own a piece of the earth. <laughs> and so the Westerns came and we said, um, you know what, there's all this land. I'm going to get some surveyors out to measure it and I'm going to allocate pieces of three-dimensional space for the exclusive use of whoever I write in this notebook. Quite literally, it's a notebook. Uh, that's held at the land's office and it says who owns which pieces of the earth and that is property. It's this literally a monopoly system that we created in a book of who owns what. And we know it's a monopoly because if I try and go on your three-dimensional space, the police will come and kick me out if you want them to. How, how uncompetitive is it for me to not be able to build my house where I used to be able to build my house? You've just created this anti-competitive licensing system for three-dimensional space. And, of course, doing so is what gives property its value. If it was competitive, three-dimensional space, the input costs are zero. How can it have a positive price? Well, it has a positive price because we created this licensing system called land title or the deed, and, and now it has a, uh, a positive price. And the logic is the question then comes about as well, yeah, okay, I can see if one person owned all the three-dimensional space in the world, that would be a monopoly. That would be a property monopolist. But what if 100 people owned it? Surely they would outcompete each other. And my question is why? For example, 100 people could own a share in the company that owned all the space, and those 100 people would also have ownership rights to one one-hundredth of the three-dimensional space, just as if you subdivided the ownership into uh, physical locations, shares of the physical location rather than shares of the company. But in neither of those situations where we change ownership, does the incentive change to just flood the market and crash the price? To reiterate, you can have one person own all the property and they'll be a monopolist. You can have everybody own a share of that monopolist company and it's still a monopolist. If all those people, all those share owners got together and said, you know what, we don't like this ownership arrangement, we're going to change it. Instead of owning a 1% share in the company, we want to own the 1% of the three-dimensional space we live in. Can we agree to change the ownership structure? We do that, still have 100 
property owners. But now instead of having this corporate structure, we don't have that anymore. We just have 100 different owners side by side. They're not all of a sudden going to change their incentives and crash the market. <laughs> they know what the incentives were because they were the monopolist. That makes sense. It, 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 it makes sense. I, I'm curious, though, do you think, um, you know, like if we removed some percentage of zoning that would reduce the price of housing and there would be some there would be more incentive to build um housing i I would assume uh no like you might get different houses in different areas and i can only speak for australia where i'm very familiar with the planning rules the planning rule does not constrain anything so australia has pretty loose zoning to begin with it sounds like well no I say it has loose zoning because I have read the town plans and you know I've studied them and I work with a lot of planners and I look at the data. Um, but if you're a property developer or a property owner or a sort of free market inclined thinker, oh yeah, zoning's terrible in Australia. Zoning's worse than in California. It's terrible. It's, it's why the prices are going up. So it depends. <laughs> You know, you've got to understand on the zoning, everybody with a vested interest in getting their property up zone, every property owner who wants more of the three-dimensional space from the rest of the community for themselves for free, for example, being able to build taller and capturing that layer of the sky for themselves, every property owner in every country of the world makes the same argument regardless of what the planning system of how the planning system operates in that country. So I know uh, in California, especially, there's this really insular debate about, oh, look at the zoning system in Los Angeles. Look at all this single-family housing. Mate, just pick any country in the world and everyone's having the same argument and all you can, you can pick who makes what argument by their financial interests. <laughs> Uh, in every country of the world. So please, you know, elevate your thinking a little bit and say, well, isn't it funny that certain interests say this everywhere and have done for decades? And yet, for example, in Australia, there's more bigger, better housing than any time in history on a per capita basis. So it's very hard to say that we don't have enough. And the whole point of my research on the absorption rate is to say that we had expensive property, expensive housing and boom and bust cycles for centuries before zoning was invented. <laughs> and now we have this situation where we additionally have zoning and everyone said, now everything's to do with zoning. You know, the most popular book in the English speaking world in the 1890s was Progress and Poverty by Henry George. And his whole point was exactly that how can we have so many people in poverty and so many rich property owners at the same time? There is some fundamental allocation issue going on here. And so um, the absorption rate is basically this idea that our property monopoly system, regardless of zoning, has a built-in speed limit. It has, uh, it has a, a regulator on how quickly it will sell and build housing, which is the market conditions. And if you observe when markets boom, all of a sudden you double or triple the rate of housing construction, then the question has to be, well, that can't be zoning because all of a sudden uh, you're building three times as quickly as you used to. You used to blame zoning and now you're doing it. Surely it was the market that wasn't good enough for you to do it. 
Does that make sense? So if you can build, um, you know, in a city, 10,000 dwellings per year, if you can apply for 10,000 in the planning system, get them approved and build them, and then some years you're building 3,000 and complaining about the zoning system, well, that seems ridiculous because you've just proven that if you make the applications, they will get approved and you can build them. You're clearly not building them because the market conditions um, you know, don't suit you. And the best way to think about this is that undeveloped property is an asset on your balance sheet that makes a return. You don't need to convert that property to cash to make money. Just like owning a share in a portfolio goes up in value and that's good for you, you don't have to sell it. You, you keep it because you want to not have cash. You want to own an appreciating asset. That's true of an undeveloped piece of land. It goes up in value without being developed. So the, you've got to consider the decision to develop is, is an asset allocation decision, not a production decision. It's not like, it's not like um, producing cars. But even then, right, there are market constraints. You know, if, if demand goes down for, for Mazdas, they'll, they'll produce less. And, uh, and we'll all agree there that it's a market constraint. It's not a regulation on airbags or whatever. But in property, we've all sort of forgotten this idea for some reason. I think it becomes a politically easy thing to say is to blame zoning because you get to ignore the idea that um, a property market crash is bad for the economy. You get to, you get to um, pretend that property markets somehow get fair distribution of housing or have done in the past, which they have never done. All the success stories in housing have come from huge amounts of public intervention and provision of housing. And so we're in a weird world now where we think the property market is going to give us something that property markets have never given us before. And again, when something's important, often we choose not to allocate it by price. We just haven't decided that housing is important enough to think about non-price ways of allocating this i'm curious so it, it does seem so so i i am a fan of you know land value taxation i do think land is a it's a it's a special asset it has these monopolistic properties which you know encourage people to speculate hold undeveloped land um and, and all these bad things which we should try and remedy but it does seem like if you can't build high density housing if it's just legally not allowed even though you can make a lot of money renting, you know, luxury high rise in San Francisco, um, it, it seems like uh, zoning is a constraint that is preventing more housing to be built. A am I wrong there? Yeah, well, you've got to think about what zoning does. Okay, here's a question: Do lane markers on the road prevent driving? Do they slow people down, or do they speed people up? Because zoning tells you what shape dwellings go in what places. Just like road lanes tell you which direction, which cars facing which direction go in which locations, but they're not speed limits, right? Within a planning system, you can build as fast as you want within the zoning, right? right? The zoning is not a, a speed limit. And the only important factor in understanding housing supply is that that speed, that rate of new housing across a region is what determines how many houses there are. So think about two, think about two um, high-rise apartment buildings next to each other. They're both gone for pre-sale, right? I don't know how it works in in Australia. Most um, 
most new apartments are condos, as in you can buy an individual apartment out of the building. And developers pre-sale, usually more than half, usually 60% before they'll commit to construction. And so you've got two buildings that are approved because the owners, you know, think it's good timing in the market and they're sitting there and there's two pre-sale offices next to each other. There's a finite number of buyers going into those offices each month and whoever buys in one building is not going to buy in the other building, right? Yeah. And so the existence of two slows down the rate at which any in which either of them can sell. They can only get half the buyers each per period. And so you might end up with a bit of a hold-up problem in, in that it takes both of them a lot longer to pre-sell by both being um, available at the same time than if one of them went first, got all the pre-sales and built, and this, the other guy went second. And so you can see how even though the density is high, there is still this constraint on how quickly those buildings get into the market. And you might think, oh, yeah, it's just two buildings. But sometimes two buildings can take five or ten years to pre-sell and to completely sell. I worked for a property developer um, back in 2005. We had, uh, we had a building on the Sunshine Coast north of Brisbane and it was right in the middle of the boom. We opened the sales office on Sunday morning. There was a queue down the street. And we closed it an hour after we opened it. We could have sold the whole building that day. That would have triggered construction. We would have started construction within a, a month or two. Instead, we closed the office, put the prices up, and sold at the maximum we could sell, and took another, another six months to get our pre-sales, built the building, and still owned a bunch of, bunch of um, apartments in it two years after the building was complete. So instead of selling everything on one day, we ended up selling everything over five years, that five-year period. And so that's, I guess, um, another way to try and explain that there's just a finite rate at which properties will get developed regardless of zoning. Now, I'm not saying zoning doesn't constrain where things go. And if you have a fully built-out suburb, detached housing, that's only zoned for detached housing, you're not going to get new housing in that suburb but all locations are ultimately substitutes and anyone who can't buy in that is going to buy somewhere else so what i'm trying to say is that it's fine to upzone if you think that's a good way for your city to develop don't expect that to have a price effect because you might get more housing than you otherwise wouldn't you you know because those buyers will end up in your city where you can build buildings and not down the road where they would have alternatively but your price is not going to be lower gotcha that's the uh the summary gotcha gotcha um okay i've got one more line of questioning here i know we're running up on time um right. and it has to do with the australian economy you know it's often touted in america as like uh being somehow able to escape like a lot of the boom bust cycles that uh, we have here in the U.S. and in Western Europe, uh, what's your sense as to why that is? Is it just better monetary policy? Is it um, some special aspect of the, of the Australian economy? What do you think that is? And is that even a true um, true analysis? <laughs> uh, well, you know, there's a saying called "Australia is a lucky country." Uh, have you ever heard of the lucky country? saying no okay well the full quote is australia is a lucky country 
run by second-rate people who share its luck. <laughs> so essentially, that that is that is also a view I share on your question of how does Australia skate through all these cycles relatively um, relatively unscathed? It's not like we don't have cycles, and I, I think it's mostly pure luck. Um, I think in the um, financial crisis era, for example, we did have a lot of stimulus, cash stimulus, but we also benefited from China's monetary stimulus because we'd become very oriented to export, exporting uh, minerals and energy resources to China, uh, and, and very disproportionately so, I must say. If you compare Australia and the US, Australia's economy is much narrower, so... Um, yeah, when the resources boom, people were just moving from their jobs in the city out into the mines. It was it was pretty substantial. Uh, so I think a lot of it is is just pure luck. I don't think our bureaucrats are any better at anything. The um, the tax and welfare system has pretty good automatic stabilizers built in, which essentially mean when your incomes go down, you get taxed less, and they'll. Yeah, you get more welfare, so it helps smooth things out. Um, but I just I don't think there's um, much more to it than that in, in many ways. <laughs> we also had a big uh, immigration boom uh, from sort of ramped up in 2006, 2007. So um, in the 2008 crisis, for example, we were already into a new construction boom as well lots of immigrants lots of activity so i think it's yeah it's luck <laughs> it's luck that we've had uh various changes through external means the china resource boom the migration wave uh that were timed in a way to smooth out our economy that we had nothing to do with gotcha i think that's the best summary well it's oftentimes better to be lucky than good so <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> well, um, well, Cameron, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, where should we send people? Where can they find your work? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Dr. Cameron Murray. And my Substack is probably the best place to go and read up on my rants about property and capital and things like that. Uh, fresheconomicthinking.substack.com or fresheconomicthinking.com will get you there eventually as well. Um, that's kind of my personal online persona. And uh, yeah, Twitter is where I'm pretty active as well. So if, if your listeners want to follow me there and ask me questions, happy to, happy to chat. Awesome. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks, Will. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.